4 p.m., stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Two beautiful ladies who have a great story to tell, who went through a whole lot. In 1972, a lot of great, a lot of things happened great in, the, in this country, in the community, but there was also some serious things that took place in the city of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at the University of Southern. Now I have here Ms. Sakara Harnett. Welcome to Count Time. Thank you. And I also have here Ms. Brenda Williams, Ms. Williams, welcome you to Count Time. Thank you. There's a whole lot to, to talk about, and we have ended up in a 50-year, coming up to a 50-year, I don't even want to say an anniversary, but because it was a tragic situation that took place 50 years ago in November. That was a young, that was a, I don't want to go too fast. First of all, I have to get a little background. And I want to know a little bit about you, Ms. Sakara. You go first. Yeah. Well, I was born in New Orleans, born and raised in New Orleans, went to Catholic school all my life, and decided that um, when I graduated from high school, I went to Xavier University Prep School, and when I graduated from high school, I decided <laughs> that I would go to college. I did not want to go to Xavier University because that's where my father went and all the nuns there knew him and he was a genius and I was not oh. and I did not want them to compare me to him. So, so you, um, consciously, I you consciously made a, a conscious effort not to go there? I oh. made a conscious effort not Now what was your father's name? My father was Gerald David Cheatham. Cheatham. And, okay. Cheatham. and when I was in um, high school one of my teachers told me that um, she remembered my dad. My dad was deceased at this time. And she said that when he was a little boy, he was in her class, she was my chemistry teacher. And she said she went around the class and asked every child in the class, what do you want to do when you grow up? And every child in the class said to her, I want to be a school teacher, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a nurse, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a policeman. When she got to my dad, she said, well, Gerald, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, President of the United States. Ooh. So she said she was really shocked to hear that, but she didn't pay much attention to it. And so she said later on, she'd go around a class and he would always say the same thing. The nuns who taught us were white nuns in the Blessed Sacrament Order, I believe. And she said one day she decided that she would tell this little boy, and at that time they used the word color, she would tell this little colored boy that he could not be President of the United States. And she would try to explain to him why. So she said she called my dad into the room and she sat him down and she explained to him as best she could, because he was relatively young, um, why he could not be president of the United States. <clears throat> so she said, after they finished, she said, well, Gerald, do you understand? And he said, yes, I understand. And so the next time she went around the class to ask the children, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my dad responded, president of the United <laughs> States. <laughs> so she said she decided at that time that she could not tell this little colored boy <laughs> that he would not be president of the United States because he was determined that that's what he was going to do. And she said that all of the nuns admired him because he was such a brilliant child and would take it upon himself to tutor the other kids. So she said that she would not try to convince him that he could not be president of the United States. So that's, um, that's a little background on who my dad was and probably it should give you some insight into the kind of person that I am. And you went to end up going to law school. Well, yeah, but that, that was a journey. My, my original 
original plan was to work on a PhD in psychology. I always liked psychology. That's what I thought I would always do. <clears throat> and um, when I went to, um, um, when I was at Southern, my major was psychology. So I'm uh, in the psychology department. We were involved in a lot of things, and I was involved in a program. It was a pilot program. It was like for honor students. And there was another woman there, Ola. She's Ola Prejean now. I don't remember what her maiden name was. She was in the program. And we were having a lot of um, discussions about things that we should do in the community. Ola wasn't necessarily a part of that conversation early on. But we decided that we wanted to do things that would make the university more responsive to the black community. And I was particularly upset with what I saw at Southern University because I went to LSU and I saw the difference between what was available at LSU and what was available at Southern University for black students. So that was a part of the protest. And then the other part of the protest was, um, oh, the reason why I was upset is because I looked at some of the things that happened in South Baton Rouge and it seemed like the university was there to, um, to better the professors and the administrators, but it didn't do anything for the community or the children or people in the community. So we decided to get involved in some of the things in the community. And one of the first things that we decided to do was to um, picket <coughs> a theater that was on Scenic Highway. Scenic Highway. Mm -hmm. and we, um, and I don't remember the name of the man who owned the theater, but I'd see Cooks. little children. Cook's Theater? Cook's Theater. And. Cook's Theater? Okay. Or And. And so we would, um, I would, I would go, at the time I was married, and I would go with my husband, and I'd see little children. So you was married while in college? And, yeah, when I was at Southern, I got married at 19, almost 20. So you yeah. got to college, you got married. Um, right, yeah, <laughs> pretty much after my first semester, so. And so. Um, now, who's your husband? Edward Hardnett was his name. Hardnett. Mm -hmm. yeah. Edward Hardnett. And so I um, talked to some of the other people. Well, we were going to the theater and we would see little children in movies that were rated R. And really, some things that little children should not have been exposed to. But they, they was in there watching the movie. They were, yeah, they okay. were there watching. And at that time, you sit through a movie, and some some people would send their children to the theater to babysit. So they'd watch the movie once, and then they'd watch it again, and they just sat through, yeah, you know, several yeah, yeah, several movies. And so um, the other thing that I noticed was the, the conditions in the theater. Uh, the exit doors were, had chains on them so that if there was an emergency, you couldn't get out. And all of those things were very concerning, not just to me, but to other people that I discussed that with. So we decided that we would approach the owner of the theater and ask him to do something about it, and he declined. And then we decided to pick it and protest. And that was how we started with um, you know, being involved in the community. So y'all started at the theater first? We started at the yeah, theater yeah, first. Okay, but but yeah. you, yours really started at LSU because they, you, know, you went to LSU briefly. I went to LSU for one semester. One semester. Okay. It wasn't a good experience. You don't even remember how long it was there. No, it was not a good experience. <laughs> so um, when I left LSU, I, um, after I got married, my ex-husband was from Baton Rouge and uh, was a student at Southern University at the time. And so we both registered um, to go to school and I worked on campus and also went to school. And he, did, he didn't work on campus, but he was, went to school. So <clears throat> at any rate, um, we decided to picket the theater and we went back and forth and back and forth, but eventually we were able to get them to open the doors, the exit doors, unchain the exit doors and to enforce the um, restrictions um, that the different movies would require theaters to um, impose upon their customers. Let me, let me, Ms. Williams, you got to tell me now, give me a little brief background of 
Where are you from? Where you grew up at? I'm originally from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Oh, and um, unlike Sakari, who started in, well, I guess similarly, I started my early education at St. Francis Xavier Elementary School, but I was only there for two years. And after that, I went into public school because my parents could no longer afford to send the three of us who were in school at that time. Uh, they gave me the option of staying since I was the youngest of the three at that time, but I chose to leave with the other two. And for me, quite frankly, it was probably a very good decision because my world expanded at that time. Uh, prior to that time, I think it was pretty insular. You know, I, I knew the people at my church. I knew the people in my immediate neighborhood, but we didn't venture much out after that. When I got into public school, kids were coming from different areas, different backgrounds, and I liked that. I liked that not everybody was the same. Okay? Um, my earliest involvement in activism uh, began probably when I was about six or seven years old. Six or seven? Yes, because my mom belonged to, in fact, both my parents belonged to an organization called the Knights of Peter Claver. And my mom had a position in the Ladies Auxiliary. Now, what's your mom name? Eloise Brent. Okay. And she, uh, of course, she's deceased now. She would be 102 if she were alive today. Um, she had a position that required her to go and visit people who were sick. And uh, she paid a small insurance amount uh, that the organization provided to its members who had an illness, either short-term or long-term. So I was there with her every time she went. And whenever they needed something, oh, to get something from the refrigerator or move this to here, I was there to be the legs of that. Later on, uh, my aunt Gladys White, who actually taught at a high school in uh, Scotlandville, Scotlandville High School, began to involve me in things in the community that she was involved in through her sorority, which was um, Xavier, uh, Zeta Phi Beta. And she was also very active in the YWCA. And um, after, when I was about eight years old, just before I turned eight, we moved into a, the same neighborhood as the YWCA for African American women. So there were a lot of activities. Where was that located at? That was, that was located at the corner of Maximilian and Julia Streets. It's no longer there, uh, at, sadly, okay, because it was a place where a lot of activities took place for African American women uh, during my formative years. So I was active in that. And then another neighbor of mine, uh, Mrs. Laura Baranco, was very involved in something called, it was either Goodfellas or Oddfellas. One, one was a black organization, yeah. one was white. Oddfellas was, was, was the other one, yeah. Was that the African-American yes. one? Oddfellas. Okay, well, whichever one. But it was like the first HMO, because they, they provided insurance, medical insurance, uh, even gave you, gave you money for barrier. Okay. Well, I didn't know about all of that. The only thing that I did know about was that at Christmas time, they provided clothing for children in need. And that's the, part, that's the phase that I got involved in. So I would go to Mrs. Baranco's house, and she had a list of children, their ages, and their sex, whether girl or boy, and we would package bags that uh, would be given to the children at that time. So that was some of it. But my real political type involvement was at the helm of Mrs. Eva Lagarde. Eva Lagarde. Eva Lagarde, school, first, yes. first school board member. First black African-American school board yeah. member. She was a member of St. Francis Xavier Church, and she was in my community, and she had a daughter in my class. But uh, when she became a member of the school board, that said to me, okay, we've got a foot in the door. And I had always heard the expression, White folks don't want you to get a foot in the door because they feel if you get a foot in the door, you're going to take over. As a young child, those, that was the kind of thing that I heard. So I said, okay, Mrs. Lagarde has her foot in the door, so that means that that door is going to be open for a whole lot of people. Uh, when Joe Delpit ran for city council, very first time, 
Mrs. Lagarde said, okay, we need some students to go up and down the streets of South Baton Rouge to people who have not registered to vote yet. Because at that time, you couldn't register to vote unless you could pass a test. And a part of that test was computing your age to the day. And most people didn't have to do that in normal life. So we, would, we started on East Boulevard, which is now Delpit Boulevard, and we went to streets like that were named after states, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, okay. And we would go door to door. Are you registered to vote? If they were registered to vote, we thanked them, encouraged them to vote, and we moved on. If they weren't registered to vote, we had to ask them why, and then we would proceed to show them how to do that. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't eligible to vote. I wasn't old enough to vote, but I was old enough to help them to do that. When I got to Southern University, my idea was that this is going to open up my world. I had an opportunity to go to either LSU or Southern University, and at the, at the time, LSU was not the place for me because I'd heard too many horror stories of people who had done the work and not gotten credit for it. Now, later in life, I found that some of my classmates who went to LSU um, had more success than that. Their, their instructors were fairer with them. They gave them credit for the work that they did. But that's beside the point. I wanted to be in an African-American environment. Okay. So at Southern, my idea was that I was going to go there. I was going to learn much more information that I had learned in books or in my community. And there was going to be a lot of activism, not just in the Scotlandville area, but also in the South Baton Rouge area where I lived and moving out throughout the state of Louisiana. That was my ideal interpretation. And when I got there, it was not that. It was a rude awakening. It was, that, it was a very rude awakening. At Southern University. At Southern University. My freshman year. What year was your freshman year? 69, 69, 70. My freshman year, and I'm sure it was because I was in the freshman honors program, my instructors were very good. My classes were good. They were challenging. In fact, one of my instructors, a history instructor, was, a, was one of the same ones I had had at McKinley High School. But when I left his class, probably in 10th grade, he left to go to Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon to work on his PhD. So after obtaining his PhD, he came to Southern University. I knew that that would be a challenging class, very interesting class, and it was. After my freshman year, however, things began to deteriorate. I am not saying that professors didn't care or that they didn't have knowledge. But what I am saying is that I was not challenged. I was not challenged by the work. I was not challenged by the activism. And it was very disheartening. I had participated in uh, student government my freshman year. Sophomore year, I wasn't so interested until the thing that got me a little more interested was the election of the first African-American female student government president at Southern University, and that was Rona Wilford. What year was that? That was either 69 or 70. I think it was 69. She served in 69 and 70. And then at LSU, one of my neighbors, Carrie Pusho, was elected to student government presidency at LSU. So those things were a little bit, that was on the good side. But you mentioned the year 1972. Okay. 72 for me was a, a, a very deciding year. And it, it didn't begin with November of 72. Because earlier now, in the- Is that your junior year or your senior year? Well, I would say a, a, an early graduating senior. Okay. Because I would have graduated in December of 72 had there been a graduation. Okay, most of my classmates graduated in May of 73. I didn't graduate until January of 73 because the school was closed in December of 72. But earlier in the year, I attended the Black National Political Convention in Gary, Indiana. And at that convention, 
people from all over the United States of America converged in the city of Gary to talk about things that African Americans wanted from the United States government. Also in the year 1972, there was a, a protest at Burnside, Louisiana. Most people haven't even heard of Burnside right, right or about that protest. Right of Gonzales. Yes. And the purpose for that protest was that the United States government had issued an embargo uh, against, uh, it was Rhodesia at that time, it, it was Uganda at that time. They changed their name to Rhodesia. Idi Amin. Dada. So we were told that the United States, in fact, was still importing chromium ore from Rhodesia, and that a ship was going to be unloaded at Burnside. So a group of us decided that we would meet that ship with protest. And there were people from uh, United Press International who met us there, and they were going to publicize this. Well, the police department. So the sheriff's department met us there, and uh, they knew that we were coming. So rather than have the ship unload, that day, they told us that it was not in fact coming. And that, uh, but what happened was after the protest ended, the ship did in fact come later and it unloaded there at Burnside. Uh, we were met by the sheriff's, I'm, and I'm assuming it's sheriff's offices, some law enforcement uh, with long guns. And I'll never forget the, the comment made by one of the uh, gentleman from the press, the northern press, who said, my God, they've got live ammunition. And I turned around, and someone in the group said, what else do you think they would shoot us with? And uh, he, he, he had a very startled look on his face. So things escalated from that point. And they at escalated at Southern University for me. Okay, so I don't know if you want us to share no, some of that because Sakari can tell you about what got that started. I can only tell you what got it started for me. Okay, well, let me just go to that. Okay. So, now Sakari, now that's, that's the name of ancient Egypt, first of all. Yeah. That's a city in Egypt called, that's where the Step Pyramid is at. So it's Sakari Rock. Sakari Rock, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So, so give, give me a little background with your name. Um, it's Swahili, mm -hmm. and it doesn't have anything profound. Uh, it just means kind and sweet and nice stuff. That represents you well. Well, sometimes. Jess <laughs> <laughs> can tell you the other sides of me too. Yeah, several layers. But um, I was kind of given that name and chose that name from um, some of my colleagues with Southern University at the time, um, Sababu and uh, Malik, um, I think primarily were the two involved. At with, that time? At, at that, that time, time, yeah. Now, now Ricky Hill, that was his name, who? Malik. So Ricky Hill was Malik? Ricky Hill was Malik. Oh, all right yeah. then, okay then. So, By so. the time I met them, they had already changed their name. And I was in the process of trying to decide, you know, what I wanted to do. So they had changed and the name while in college. Oh yeah. Now, oh yeah. Now where where was Ricky Malik? Where brother Malik? Where was he from? Um, Bugalusa. Bugalusa. Yeah, yeah. So he was, you know, I, I guess grew up very active. Um, that's where the deacons from defense right. are from. And I guess he grew up, you know, watching that and going through. That whole experience. Is Ricky still around? Yeah, yeah, okay. he's still around. He's a professor now. I don't know where, but I think he got his PhD from Clark Atlanta, and don't quote me on that. And um, and I think I don't know if he's retired because we're all pretty old now. Yeah, they're pretty um, still young. <laughs> um, you know what he's doing, but I you know I know that he's still um, active politically. Okay, now you left yeah, just academia. you left LSU. Dr. Jackson said you was kind of quiet to yourself, a cute little girl walking around LSU campus. But you you you, would, you left after the first year and didn't went to Southern. 
And yeah, there were a lot of things involved with my um, leaving LSU, and I'm you know, really not going to go into all of that because I don't want the focus to be on LSU. Right. I think um, the primary focus should be on you know, what I perceive to be the disparities between the way that black students were being treated and the way that white students were being treated. And I knew that my parents and other black people paid taxes and participated in um, this society the same way that white people did. And at that time, I don't think that I was sophisticated enough to know why things were exactly the way that they were, but I knew deep down inside that it wasn't right. And that's what I think um, fueled my rage. Well, not just that, you had just left LSU and had everything, had everything over there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, but not only that, I mean, I grew up in New Orleans. I saw the difference. Uh, New Orleans is, you know, different from Baton Rouge in that people um, probably lived more um, integrated in some ways than in other, other areas of Louisiana. But the racism was as profound here in New Orleans as it was in any other place. I remember um, when the buses were integrated. I remember in high school, we would have demonstrations downtown at the five and 10 cent store. Um, in New Orleans? The, in New Orleans. Okay. I remember I, I would catch the bus from my parents lived in a little area called Boscoville. And I would, yeah, and I would right behind Dillard University. Okay. And I would have to catch the bus from there to go to um, Xavier Prep, which was way uptown. And I'd have to catch three buses to get there. And I remember all of the things that happened to me over the years. On one particular occasion, I was on the bus coming from um, Xavier Prep, and the area that my parents lived in, I'd have to walk through the white neighborhoods to get to where my parents lived. And so I would, the, all of the black kids would primarily get off at Gentilly and Elysian Fields. And then for the rest of the way, it was mostly white kids. And on the bus, there was a group of white boys from Resurrection. It was a Catholic high school in New Orleans. And I remember one day sitting on the bus, it was me and one other little black girl. And the guys from Resurrection started singing out loud. There's a whole bunch of them on the bus. Uh, glory, glory, segregation. They're putting all the niggas where the white men ought to be. And they kept singing that song over and over and over. And when the, the, the little other little black girl who was on the bus, and she was smaller than I was, um, younger, uh, and maybe in, in elementary school, when she got ready to get off of the bus, um, the white boys took a big book, like a biology book or something, and slammed it into her face. And I saw blood and the little girl crying, and she's getting off of the bus. Well, I'm thinking, I'm next. You know, I have to get off two stops from here, and what are they going to do to me? And I was afraid. I was a, a little child. And I remember going, sitting, and thinking to myself, what am I going to do? I can't fight all of these boys. My brother and my dad's not around to defend me, so what am I going to do? So I remember walking to the front of the bus, because usually you would get on the bus from the front and exit through the back. But I decided that I would walk up to the front where the bus driver was and get off at the front of the bus and maybe that would prevent them from slamming a book or, or doing something even more grotesque to me. And so I walked to the front of the bus and I got off the bus. And I remember walking home and crying and thinking, feeling impotent almost. Like, how could I defend myself um, from such cruelty, and I didn't do anything to cause that. I didn't do anything to make them feel that way towards me. And it was a reg and the regular city bus in New yeah, Orleans. Yeah, this was a public service yeah. bus. You know, because at that time, um, most of us caught, you know, when, when you went from, let's say, elementary school to a high school, we caught the bus. We didn't have school buses bus. that you bus have us, school not bus. high school, right. that bust us, you know, to our high school and not to Catholic schools, maybe to the public schools. 
And I remember um, going home and thinking, well now, if I tell my dad about this, he's gonna get his shotgun and, and go try to catch that bus. And I can't tell my brother because he and his friends will they gonna get gather in around. Yeah. yeah. So I remember keeping it to myself, but having that fear just build up in me about you know how somebody could treat you so cruelly. Yeah. Plus, you have to you, you, you got you have brothers, you have a dad. But you can't put them in harm's no, way. No. Because it was it, it's that much more dangerous to tell your dad no. to tell your brother. Right, right. So and you gotta bad. you gotta fight your own fight, basically. Yeah, it was to bad protect your, your dad. Right. Your it was bad in our community. The white boys would come by yelling niggers and my brother and I would hide in the bushes with eggs and throw eggs at them and my mother would get mad with us for using her eggs to throw at them. <laughs> and and it was yeah, it was really a bad so so when I left New Orleans um, that was a part of me, you know, and also growing up, um, my parents split at one point. My dad moved to Chicago. My mother lived here. I would visit my dad. Now, what's your mother's name? Audrey Balfour. Okay. And I would visit my dad in Chicago, and I, and I saw the differences. You know, I saw how things were there and how they were here, and I knew, I always knew that it was wrong. I always knew that that disparity was wrong. And so by the time I got to college, um, it was like, no more. It's no more. And um, luckily, I had the foundation in our community, in the black community, because we went to black churches, you know, we social, all of our events were black. I had that support that surrounded me to make me feel and to give me the courage to say, no more. No, so. but you went in, you left, you was at LSU first, you left LSU because of some experience you had. You went over to Southern, and that's where things really, you know, yes. some things started happening. Now, what was the Catlin, what got all this started? Uh, you know, I know you say that y'all wanted better living conditions, food, so what, what was that about? What brought this about in 1972 when the students, y'all was protesting? Well, it, it didn't just start because we were a bunch of angry students running around to protest. It started because um, it started in the psychology department, and well, at they that they time, fired them for psychology well, teaching. no, we had a very progressive. Well, there were three professors at the university who were very progressive. One was Joe Johnson, who was a PhD from Yale and decided that he wanted to come back to the South and contribute to our people. The other one was Chuck Waddell, who's in the psychology department. And same thing with Chuck, he got his PhD from Michigan State and was coming back to the South to contribute. And also George Baker, who was, um, I think a PhD candidate in, um, at UCLA, and he decided I guess to leave his program early and to come back to um, to Southern to teach there. At the time, Southern, and I don't know if it still is, but Southern was the largest black university. It had ten thousand students. It had That's 10, right. 000 in students this country, and the majority of the programs were not graduate programs. You know, the majority of the programs were undergraduate programs. So. Um, so it was a beautiful place to be. It was a it great was, environment. It was a great environment to be in, in one sense because um, we had Mickey Giovanni come into the school to um, speak because of, you know, Joe Johnson and, and his um, tell about Tell about who is, who is, who is Nikki Giovanni. And Nikki Giovanni is a, a black activist artist who um, did very progressive work and, and still does, from what I understand, progressive work in, um, in the black community. So she and other people, Angela Davis, had come to Southern University to talk. Um, really progressive um, people. So we, you know, we was, and, and the country was pretty much on fire at that time. It was almost like an intellectual renaissance in terms of, um, of our awareness as a people, um, in terms of our value and our worth, and the fact that we, um, you know, we wanted to be treated that way. So um, I wasn't, um, I wasn't 
a very progressive person or very or an intellectual person or any of those things. I was just, no, no, seriously, I was just, Joyce can tell you, I was just a little Catholic school girl <laughs> who, you know, saw things the way that they were and thought that we should do something about it. And that was, you know, my whole impotence um, for getting involved in some of the things that I got involved in. And then I met other really, um, like the professors I told you about, I met other students who were doing very progressive um, things. And we decided to join forces and try to um, achieve some of the things that we thought were necessary to make our community a better place for all of us, for all black people. And so some of the disparities that we noticed were, um, we got together with students from the Blackstone Society, the political science department, and some of um, the other departments, and we decided to, um, to take the university on. Now who are we? Well, um, Sababu, who I have subsequently learned his name was Hergen Harris, <laughs> and um, Malik, uh, who is Ricky Hill. Um, there was another person who was peripheral, peripherally involved with us to some extent, Fred Prejean, and um, other females, um, Sababu's wife, we called her Kat, and uh, Ola, who was um, Fred Prejean's fiance, um, Margaret Leonard, who, um, whose father was a professor at the university, Dr. Leonard, um, and some other people. It's been a long time, 50 years, so I don't yeah. remember all the names, but it wasn't just me. It was a whole group of people. So a group of students, y'all came together, sit down, and decided what some key issues or concerns that need to be addressed at the University of Southern, Southern University. So y'all wrote up uh, 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 several pages of, inf of Yeah, we of got things. together and decided, you know, what we wanted to accomplish. We decided on a name, we called ourselves Students United and we wanted them to give us better um, academic opportunities, um, better um, educators. We wanted them to bring in some of the black scholars from around the country like Joe and, and uh, Joe, Chuck. And Joe stuff. Jenkins? Joe, Je Joe um, Johnson, 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 Johnson mm -hmm. yeah. Chuck, um, Charles Waddell, George Baker, um, and another, a, a number of other black scholars were at the university at the time, but we wanted it to be a, a, a center um, for intellectual growth for our students, our people. That's a great thing. Yeah, and also we wanted the school to treat the students like they were human beings. So you're talking about Southern University? Southern University, we wanted better housing for the students, we wanted better educational opportunities, we wanted better food for the students, we wanted better scholarship opportunities for the students, um, better work-study opportunities for the students, all of those things we wanted. Now, Ms. Ms. Williams, now you tell me what, now what, what role you played in all this? Well, unlike those who were majoring in psychology. I was majoring in sociology, okay? Not social work, as a lot of people think about it, but the sociology department. And from my perspective, that department should have been at the forefront of this kind of movement, it sh or it should have been right there with it. Um, but, but it was not, okay? I did not find the type of activism that I was looking for. I did not find the community involvement that I was looking for. So I began to go to meetings that the Blackstone Society had and other groups that were talking about uh, getting together this list of things to ask the university for. Um, the, I had my own personal list that was just as long as that, okay? but. Um, a lot of the things that they were asking for were things that I felt we needed in, in the, the department as well. Because, again, because I wasn't getting that, I started looking at all the areas in which the school needed to improve. And for me, it started with the freshman complex. My class was the first class to live in the so-called freshman complex. 
It was the first, it was the answer to co-ed living, but it really wasn't because it was a, a, a girl's dorm, Bowley Hall, a boy's dorm, Jones Hall, with a common area. That's what it was. From day one, the elevators didn't work. From day one? Day one, move-in day. The elevators did not work, and most times they didn't work after that. Sometimes, uh, and well, this was true throughout the Southern University system because Southern had its own water system. I was from the city of Baton Rouge. We had a different type of water system. It was artesian well water. It was good water. You could take a bath with a bar of ivory soap, and it would lather, and you would come out without having that big film on your tub. Okay. At Southern, you smelled the water before you drank the water. I could not adjust to that readily. So most times, I did not drink water, which caused other problems for me. But I would go home often, and my dad would say, it seems like you're coming home just to take a bath and drink water. I said, at one point, y'all had, y'all was meeting up here in New Orleans on Gentilly at your house? No, no, we were at, um, I don't know who lived in, <laughs> in that apartment at the time, but we were there um, meeting with some, probably some of the students from Southern University because they were also having demonstrations and protests over um, the conditions at SUNO here in New Orleans. So we probably were meeting with so, some of them. So y'all had meetings simultaneously yeah, during the demonstrations. demonstrations going on Precisely. in Baton Rouge and New Orleans. You had the same concerns and issues. Precisely. And you were saying that at one point that Governor Edwin Edwards showed up to the meeting. No, he came, he hopped the fence. I don't know how he knew that we were meeting there, but he hopped the fence and came in through the back door to meet with us. And, um, you know, I don't, well, we didn't read, reached the resolution that, that he wanted. So he left, he had his security guards, and he left, and um, we went, went on with our meeting. He told us that he was setting up a blue ribbon committee to uh, deal with the issues at Southern University, and he appointed um, various, quote unquote, political leaders from the Baton Rouge community and, um, well, I guess not just Baton Rouge, but the surrounding Baton Rouge community, and they were on his Blue Ribbon Committee. And so he showed, he showed up at y'all meeting to deter y'all from moving forward? We don't know why, why he showed up. He just he came in and discussed some things with us, and we didn't agree, and then he left. So, so he came with his own agenda of course. To, uh, for y'all to, to buy in? I guess so. But none of those was, was y'all had, had no interest in what he was talking no, about. No, we didn't. Y'all had, had your own concern as a group that y'all had. Precisely. were different from his concerns. Much different. Yes. So once he, once he realized that, no, these, they got their own agenda. Now, so let's move. And the security guards left. And security guards. Mm -hmm. Yes. <clears throat> Now, so now, but you 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 are still a student at Southern University at the time. That's correct. Now y'all, so so within a few days later, y'all end up back in Baton Rouge. That's right. So now, what what's going on now? What, well, we're what's, still demonstrating and, and having meetings. We decided. Now what now what's part what what time of the year is this? What's the, what's this is in November, um, not November, in September, October, leading up to November, and the university closed. Um, well, the university closed the university down, Netherville did. And um, so we decided that we would still have classes. So the students would have, seniors would teach the freshmen and sophomores and, um, and have study sessions and we continue to try to move forward with our education. And around that time, this is leading up to, um, November, the, um, the police came to my house at 4 o'clock in the morning and knocked on the door and said that they had a warrant for my arrest. And so I, um, my brother-in-law answered the door at the time. He woke me up. I got dressed and I went down and 
they told me that they handcuffed me and told me they were taking me to jail. So they took, I later found out and that well, when they arrested me, I thought I would go to the same place where the other students were who were being arrested because I didn't think they were just going to arrest me. And when, um, when I got to um, the prison, they took me to the woman's state prison. In Baton Rouge. In St. Gabriel. Yeah. And um, they took the guys down to the, whatever the central lockup is in Baton Rouge. And when I was, in, when I was there, they strip searched me. Um, you know, took everything off, strip searched me, gave me a prison uniform to put on. I put the uniform on and they told me to, they gave me a mattress and they told me to carry the mattress back to the jail cell, to the, you know, where, where I was going to be incarcerated. Um, so I picked up, I think at that time I weighed about 87 pounds. 87 pounds. Yeah, I lost during the demonstration. Yeah. We weren't eating a whole lot and moving around a lot and so I was like bone thin. So I picked up the mattress and you know, walked to the back. I heard the, the gates click, you know, the click behind me. I went through several gates until I got to where the guard was for the cell that I was going to be in. And I remember her white woman sitting there. I remember birth control pills on the counter and thinking to myself, why would they have birth control pills in a prison? But at any rate, they took, I took my mattress back to the, um, to the cell. It was, this, it was a hallway and there were beds against the wall and there were cells with people in the cells with like four beds in each one of those cells. And uh, the women told me, oh, there's a vacant, one of them said, oh, there's a vacant cell. It might have been the guard said, there's a vacant bed in there for you to put your, you know, your mattress. And I thought to myself, I'm not going <laughs> I'm not going into that room and I don't know who's in there. And um, I took, there was an empty, um, I noticed that there was an empty bed like on um, where the wall was. So I took my mattress and I put it in the bunk that was on the wall. And there were several, maybe five or six bunks against the wall and the cells had people in them. And I remember um, that morning when the two women, two big, big women, when I tell you big, I mean big, gigantic women, came out of the cell. I thought to myself, where they told me to go, I thought to myself, God, what would have happened to me if I had gone into that cell with those women? They were, they were sitting, the guards were setting you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody was setting me up. And so uh, I stayed in the, the bunk on the wall and I remember, you know, listening to the conversations. A lot of the women were asking me about Southern and who I was and that they'd heard about the demonstrations and what was going on. So they were interested in what was going on. So, so, they, so, so they arrested you the, the day after the shooting took place? No, they arrested me the morning before the shooting. The morning before the they shooting? Took, yeah, they arrested us. And the students who went to the administration building went to the administration building, uh, and this is what I was told, went to the administration building to ask Netterville, why were we arrested and to have us released? And that was all a setup. Because during the demonstration, we always said, if the National Guard or the police came on campus, disband. You know, we would spread out and leave. If we were having a meeting, a meeting would stop, and we'd all go back, we just leave, separated. No, 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 no one's getting into no, no, no confrontation. No, we definitely did not want to get into any confrontations with them because you know our professors knew what had happened at Kent State and some of the other places, and they you know, knew that we should be very careful and told us. It was, to was guiding you through the process. Oh, exactly, too. Okay. exactly. So, um, you know, I was in jail. I, they told me that I would be in there because the um, sheriff would not set bail for us. So, you know, I was there until um, the, the, the professors belonged to the National Ed Education Association. And so the NEA and the, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund 
sent attorneys down to represent us. So when those attorneys came, they filed whatever paperwork they needed to file to have them set bail for us so that we could get out. And so, you know, once the bonds were posted, you know, we, we were released from jail. How long you stayed in jail? Maybe three days. At St. Gabriel yeah. Women Prison. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, when I got out of prison, I, um, you know, went home. My husband picked me up. And I went home, and we... Um, we were charged with inciting, inciting to ride where death occurred on two occasions. But you was nowhere to be found. You was in prison. I was in prison, yeah. <laughs> but they go charge you for something. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, when we found out that those were the charges and that we had to go to court, they reduced the charges eventually to interfering with the educational process. I believe that's what the final charge was. Now, there were some attorneys who came from... I don't know what black organization they came from, but they came from California. Dearmy Bailey and Ira Sims, I think, were their names. And they defended us through the administrative process to try to get them to set bail for us and to get us out, get us out of jail. And so after that, the National Education Association and the Legal Defense Fund sent two attorneys down to represent us through um, the trial, and we were in trial for a month. In trial for a whole month. Yeah, and every uh, day. There was two people was killed. Two young men was killed. Did you know knew any any of them? No, I did not know Leonard or Dennis. So, and you wasn't even there at that at the actual day when all this took place. No, you was, I was in prison. They had already incarcerated you. Yeah. But nobody ever got charged for killing these two young men. Not that I know of. I, I think I spoke to an attorney years later who said that he filed a civil suit on behalf of the family, but I don't know what happened with that. Um, because at the end of the trial, we were barred from campus for life. We were barred, and to this day, we are barred from Southern University. So you didn't even graduate from Southern University? No, no. What happened was um, a professor by the name of Andrew Billingsley, who was um, Dean of Academic Affairs at Howard University. Um, because we couldn't get into any other university, you know. And um, he sent a letter to us through one of the professors, I think it was George Baker, saying that we could come to Howard University, that Howard would let us in. And so we all, went up to Howard. You know, the, the core the core members, we all left and because we didn't have any other choice if we wanted to finish our education. And not only that, at that point, um, you know, I had no future in Louisiana. I mean, I would never get a job. I'd never, you know, I mean, my life was really pretty much over here. So I migrated, like the other students, to um, to Howard University and the professors, Joe Johnson, the PhD from Yale, tried to get a professorship at Howard, but Howard wouldn't give him a full professorship because the physics department was all white. And they did not want this black Yale graduate coming there because they figured he would probably take that place eventually. So he went to um, A&M and then uh, Florida A&M and then um, Joe Johnson came to Howard, not Joe Johnson, George Baker came to Howard, and he was in the co-op department. And Chuck Waddell, I believe, went back out to, Cal went out to California. They're all deceased now, all of those professors. Okay. With George Baker still living. But the attorneys who represented us and the other two professors are all deceased now. Everybody who was part of this case, that's normally the way they if things play out, they let everybody die out. Then yeah. you know. Then yeah. after that, they come tell their story. Yeah. They well, come they, they told their today. stories throughout. You know, they said that we were armed um, militants um, who were interested in disrupting, you know, the educational process for black students. Uh, we were we were going to kill the president of the university. 
um, we had, you know, we, we fired the first shots at the police who were on campus. Um, all kinds of stories that, um, just, you know, all kinds of crazy, what, malicious what, stories. Well, how many of y'all they had arrested? Nine. So the, the, the nine core people, they came in, they arrested you while you was at home? Yeah, they came to my home at 4 o'clock in the morning. 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. They locked you up. Cause, so in other words, you're saying that it was an orchestrated plan that they they was planning on going over there to by Southern the University. By the governor. So Governor See, Edward students, Edwards. Yes, students want to attribute this to Netterville. But Netterville was just a pawn. Like, you know, like a lot of these other quote-unquote black leaders, like Clarence Thomas and people like that. They just you know, storefronts. And so Netterville was there. I don't know how he got to be president of the university, but he was there. You said you don't know how he got to be president? No, I, really, said, I don't. He was not, um, shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been president, you said? I, I don't think so. Was, was his, was his, dad, his dad was president before him, right? I don't know. I don't, really no, don't no. know anything okay, about no, no. him. That's Clark. We're talking about Clark. I really don't know anything about him, but I, I don't think that, I think he was somebody that they were using and he did what he figured he needed to do to keep his paycheck coming in. And so when Edwin Edwards and you know his cronies told him what to do and the way that they dictated to other Negroes in the state at the time, they did what they were supposed to do. Not, not all of them, you know. So like, now they call y'all agitators, right? Back then. I think that was one. All right, things. but the interesting thing that all the agitators they came lock y'all up. We were in jail. So they came lock you all up. So y'all had nothing to do with what went on the next day. Nothing. Nothing. So they orchestrated their own program because y'all was nowhere to to direct nobody. We put a few of the students. I don't know how many um, went to the administration building to ask them to release us. And it's my understanding, because I wasn't there and I don't know, I only know what people have told me. But they asked Netterville to release us and he told the students to wait. There were several phone calls that came in. Netterville left, his secretaries left, and the two students were, they, they told the students to wait until Netterville returned. Yeah, they said by that time the, the National Guard, state police, Sheriff, everybody showed up on That's campus. Right. Every thing that you could think of, probably half of them were members of the Ku Klux Klan, oh. showed up that day to have target practice with us, with, with young black kids. Yeah, no, I saw I saw a video and all of the, the young guys that were speaking said that they told Netherville told them to wait till they were sitting there waiting on no no controversy, no 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 distractions, we no were, nothing. Our MO was whenever the police came, disband. You know, go, we don't want any confrontation with them, we don't have guns, you know, we're no match for them. So we would just leave. And um, So so did, did y'all know that this this day was coming? Did you all know this? So y'all wasn't planning, y'all just hoping to get something out of this. Well, we wanted, I mean, we were demonstrating for a reason, and the reason was not for two students to get killed. The, the demonstrations was to have a better life for black people, young black students, and in our community, and to make our educational process more responsive to the needs of our community. And you know, that was not happening, and that's the reason why we were protesting. We, ha we had no beef with the National Guard or the police or any of those people. The, you know, we, so Governor Edwards made that call. Edwards was behind it all. Edwards and whatever white boys were on his staff, they were behind all of this. Now, Netterville was a pawn, and I think some of the other black people who were involved may have been pawns, but it was Edwin Edwards and the white boys on his staff. Yeah. Now, that's pretty interesting. Now, and you had to go to court for a whole month, trial for a whole month, to be protect and defend yourself for something you did not do. So what, what, would they, 
what was they trying to say? I mean, you did you was you you were not there the day of the of the riot, so you could not have even been accused of having a weapon, or to say they say they had some kind of like little bombs or something. Mm -hmm. But y'all had no kind of y'all never even planned to have any type of weapons or no, bombs we, or anything. We were, we were young, naive kids. I mean, and the same thing. What happened to us? had been happening to black people for centuries. You know, black men had been lynched, you know, for no reason at all for centuries. Black people had been killed for no reason at all for centuries. Black mothers had been experimented on, you know, for years and left to die once they found cures and, and um, effective ways to treat whatever they were experimenting on them for. So, um, you know, it's tragic, it's sad, but it's not unusual. Yeah. It's not unusual for black people in America to have those kinds of experiences, for young black mothers to lose their children, to lose their sons. You know, so Breonna Taylor and, um, you know, all the other people have, who have died in, you know, in, in, in our history of struggle in this country, um, it continues, you know, it continues. It's just that we, I think, at that time did not understand the viciousness of the white boys, the way that we understand how vicious they are now. Because Trump has pretty much unleashed it all. You know, he's unleashed it all, so they're, they're out now. We see what, they, what they're like. And our, our forefathers understood what white boys were like, you know, how they take their land, kill them rape their daughters, you know, they've just, they've, they've done these atrocities to us since, you know, we set foot here. And probably even before we set foot here, because they were on the continent long ago, and heaven knows they weren't just there twiddling their fingers, probably doing the same thing there that they brought us here and started doing to us, you know, on a large scale. Now, but you all on Southern University campus, which you figure would be a safe haven, but yes, dear, there was a rude awakening that you up there just wanted the basic necessity as always, just decent food, a, a clean li living environment, and a comfortable bed that you paid for as a student, right? Well, that was a part of it, yeah. you know, but I mean, we paid for an education, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't free, and a lot of a lot of us who went to Southern at that time were from poor families, you know, who had to scrape and scrimp to get every penny that they could to send their children, you know, to send us to school. So, you know, we were entitled to get the same thing, the same educational experiences that, that the white kids were getting. And, you know, we, we say, oh, we produce the, 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 the highest percentage of doctors and we produce the highest percentage of this and we produce the highest percentage of that. Yeah, that's true. But black doctors don't have the same lifestyle that white doctors have. Black lawyers don't have the same opportunities that white lawyers have. Black pharmacists, black school teachers, none of us over the years have had the same opportunities available to us. Not the same pay scale, not the same working conditions, subjected to discrimination, that white people have never had to endure. So, okay, we get a medical degree, we get a law degree, and we may be able to live a little bit better than some of our people, but never given the opportunities that they have. You know, we can't send our daughters and provide generational wealth to our children the way that they can. Those opportunities have never, so we, we produce them. You know, they come out of Howard and Morehouse and Meharry and, and um, Southern and Xavier and on and on and on. But those opportunities are not available to us the way that they are available to them. And nine out of 10 times, if you are a black professional, you're experiencing hell on earth. <laughs> Just to maintain your, your license. So it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not an easy, it's, it's never been easy for us.
But once again, thank you for being on Count Time. You're quite welcome. You're all right. Man can shackle the hand. The man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.